founders. Welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. All right, friends, welcome back to the podcast. Today, I'm sitting down with Rishi Prabhu, co-founder of Bespoke Post. Rishi has a Bachelor of Arts degree in Computer Science and Mathematics, as well as a Master's degree in Computer Science from New York University. Rishi and his business school classmate, Steve, were accepted into the Entrepreneur's Roundtable Accelerator program and saw an opportunity in the e-commerce market for a subscription service for men. They noticed that men were more conscious of and interested in self-improvement than ever before. Yet, there wasn't a single one-stop shop out there for them to elevate their daily lives, a place that not only solid or not only sold quality products at a fair price, but also taught new and better ways of living. And so, Bespoke Post was born. To tell us all about his journey and that of Bespoke Post, here today is Rishi. So Rishi, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being here. How's it going, Drew? Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Well, I already just told you before we got started, I'm excited to hear out this product. I feel like it's geared for someone like me. Um, but in your own words, how did this company get started? Yeah, absolutely. So um, there's actually a, a story before the story. Like and uh, so when, when my, when my co-founder Steve and I met, we met, as you mentioned, in business school, and we were really excited about the idea of starting a company. And, uh, you know, we, we had thought, hey, you know, if it doesn't work out, worst case, then we could join a startup. It'll be a really exciting thing to work on. And so we just started brainstorming ideas. Ideas, and that is when the genius idea came up, which was actually a QR code company. So our first business, which is still our incorporated name, actually, okay, uh, called Nabfly, and uh, and it was a QR code company. Which you know, in retrospect, I guess QR codes are kind of in now. Uh, they're they're much more prevalent than they were back then. But anyway, um, and so we uh, the whole premise was um, creating a way for people to engage with things in the real world um, in a more intimate way. So if you saw, you know, a concert poster, for instance, you'd be able to scan it with our app and we'd be able to deliver like a really immersive experience for the consumer. Um, so we built, you know, we built an app. We, um, we actually signed some clients on board and that's when we joined uh, Entrepreneurs Roundtable Accelerator. That was the original, that was the idea that we were working on. And I would say about halfway, maybe even less through the program, it's a 12-week program, we realized, uh, well, a couple things. One, we never saw anyone scan a QR code. It was, it was actually a terrible idea in retrospect. But, um, and the other thing we realized was, hey, you know what? Like, this is a, a really heavy ad tech play. Um, it's not really in our backgrounds. It's not really what we're passionate about, what we're excited about. And we realized, you know, you, you hear a lot about product market fit, but there's also something that's really important, which which we kind of talk about, which is, you know, founder company fit. These are, these are your babies. These are things you're investing your kind of heart and soul into. And it's really important that you're, you're all in. And I don't think we were there with that. And we went back to the drawing board and it was a really tough call to make because, you know, we had, you know, a few weeks later, we, we needed to present in front of a room full of investors and all the progress we had made that summer. But we, we just didn't feel right doing it with, on an idea we weren't, you know, really all in on, really passionate about. So we pivoted. I don't I actually don't even think pivot's the right word. It was a complete, you know, complete different business that we evolved into, which is which is bespoke post, which is what we are to this day. Um, and 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 you know, 
the preamble that you you said coming into this is how it came up. It was a lot of the ideas we had talked about before, things we were really excited about. Uh, my co-founder Steve has deep uh, deep operations experience and background. I, you know, while my background is in computer science and math, I, I had more, more of like a kind of merchandising bent to my to my to my to my um, experience. And it really made sense for us, and we were really excited about it. And so we pitched the idea in uh, on September. There was it was just a deck at that point. There was literally nothing behind it. Um, and so that was September of 2011. Wow. And then on November 1st, so September, October, November, two months later, we launched. That was our we launched our first box in the world. We had a website. We were taking credit cards. So we we launched really rapidly, and uh, here we are today. That is insane. I, I wrote down major pivot. Right, <laughs> like wow! You get you start a company, you even get into this roundtable accelerator, and you made the tough decision to walk away from something that you'd already invested. I mean, where my mind went is that idea of the sunk cost fallacy, right? Yep. Where you feel that you know, I think the analogy comes from poker, where someone says, "Man, I've already put this much chips in the in the pot. Like, even though I have a losing hand, I, I've already put this much in. I need to see it through." And we fall into that trap of not seeing that we don't have a losing hand or a hand we don't enjoy. How did you guys kind of escape that trap of, man, we've already built it to this and we've already got our first customers and actually had the courage to walk away and do something new? I would lie to say it was easy. It was really, it was pretty heart wrenching. And, and, and there's also just this imminent fear of failure in front of you, um, which we were feeling pretty heavy. And we had just come you know, from business school and we had student loans and so, uh, it, it was hard. And so I think part of it was just getting out of the office and walking around. We walked around the city a lot and just talked and thought and and took that space to kind of get away from the day to day and, and free our mind from it. But you're right. The total sunk cost cost fallacy. You can't you have to move past what to an extent what's already been done. Yeah. The only thing worse is doubling down on something you, you know is not working, right? Yeah, I, I definitely don't think we'd be here today if we were still working on the other idea. But um, absolutely, I'm glad so we made that decision. Was was bespoke like the first idea you had, or was there a brainstorming session where ten different ideas came around and this one finally emerged? It it was this was pretty much the idea. I mean, it it uh, it got refined, but I remember us sitting in the conference room with a whiteboard writing ideas down, and I think I have a picture of it somewhere. But um, this was pretty much the idea. Wow, how did you how did you get that much traction that fast to go from the idea to two months later, you're actually you're launching it and taking customers? Uh, I think we just there was a sense of urgency we had to you know when we joined that accelerator program, I believe they had given us twenty five thousand dollars. That was really all we had, um, and we hadn't spent a ton of it on the other idea, and so we didn't have really have much time, and so we needed to get something out in the world to see if it had legs. You know, ideas are a dime a dozen. So I think execution really matters. And so we get, yeah, we, we hustled over those, those two months and, and like everything that could have gone wrong went wrong. The first day we launched, I remember one of our buddies was the first person to sign up and he was like, hey, um, Amex doesn't work. And we were like, oh, we need to call Amex and set up an account. So we, we did that. Uh, the FedEx labels that we packed all the boxes ourselves, it was 74 boxes, I believe, were our first rounds of shipment. We, Steve and I, and I think our, our, our significant others came, we all packed it together. The FedEx labels were wrong. So we had to run out, to, they weren't the right size for the printer we bought. So we had to run to FedEx and get proper labels. Um, some of the products that came in were all messed up. And so we had to repackage them. It was a, wow. it was, it was a fun, a fun journey. Yeah. You know, this is 
kind of a different analogy, but I think it applies here. When you watch people get married, right? Here's a curveball. When you watch people get married, what, what I've noticed is if you give yourself two years to get to plan the wedding, it takes two years to plan a wedding. If you give yourself two months to plan a wedding, wedding it takes two months to plan a wedding. Like it yeah. takes it takes however long you give yourself for the most Absolutely. part. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it sounds like to me you guys embrace like the MVP idea. Like, hey, let's not get too precious with this. We don't need it perfect. We need to get a working viable product out there that we can iterate on later. Is that kind of the thing that helped you just get it done? Yes. Um I and I, I totally agree with the analogy and I think that um I think there were some things, though, that we spent a lot of time in behind the scenes that we knew we wouldn't get to right away, but we wanted to get to eventually. Mm. So things that were really important to us were was discovery. We were really passionate about introducing our customers to really interesting products and brands, helping them cut through the noise. Uh, we were really interested in small brands and telling the story behind the products and makers that were making the products that we were featuring. So there were several kind of tenants, for lack of a better term, that we were excited about. But to your point, we had to get something out there in the world. And so, uh, yes, it was very, it was kind of like MVP from that standpoint, but underlying that underneath it were these kind of tenants that we felt really passionate about that we knew where we want, we knew we wanted to build towards over the subsequent months and years. Did you do any customer kind of research, like talking to potential customers before you launched it? Or was all that type of research after that was out in the world and you're kind of collecting feedback on it? It was a bit of both. Uh, we, we got input and insights going into launching and then ever since then i mean we're still talking to customers to this day to get their feedback through different mediums yeah what was um what was the initial way that you got it in front of people how did people know who you were it's a good question um i'm trying to think back so we would we would beg and borrow frankly we uh we had no budget for marketing for the first year i believe maybe north of a year and so we were just reaching out to people. We were emailing bloggers and publications. Um, we didn't even have enough inventory to send samples. So we were sending photos. I mean, I was taking the photos in the beginning. Um, and so they weren't, they, they, they were, they were okay. They were okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, we just tried to get as many placements as possible, no matter how small they were. And it became this snowballing effect. And so I, I still remember, I think it was March of 2012 or I would say February of 2012 was a really small blog picked us up. And then Urban Daddy, do you remember Urban Daddy? They're this like mm -hmm. newsletter. They used to be really, really big. Um, they, they, and there's, I think they're still, they're still around, and, uh, but they're, it's kind of like a daily newsletter where they talk about interesting content and, and products and things like that. And they, they saw us on this small blog and then they, we talked to them and they picked us up and they sent up a nationwide blast. I, I forget how big their mailing list was, but and then that email drove hundreds and hundreds of subscribers. It like it tripled our size, um, which I don't know if we were fully prepared for, but then we were like, wow, like there's something here. There's really something here. And from that, we just, you know, that allowed us to land bigger partnerships and press. And it, it's kind of kept going from there. I believe in, you know, June of that year, we were able to hire people. So we started hiring um, and we've been growing ever since. How long? How long into the, or how how long after the launch did that that moment you just described come out with with the publicity that led to kind of a snowball effect? I think it was six months. Wow, that's early. Months. How do you think about moments like that? It seems like in the life of every business, there's these call it what you want, like 
lucky moments or whatever, yet often it seems like, and that's why you can disagree if you want, it seems like it was preparation at opportunity more than it was a lucky bounce, that you've been reaching out to a bunch of places and doing the work, and this one really took off, or do you think of it differently? Uh, there's this picture on the internet that uh, uh, I, I always think about, and it's, it talks about success, and it's, it, I think there's two graphs next to each other. The first one shows kind of a hockey stick, and it says, like, what, what the world sees, and then the other one is what actually happened, and it's this, like, really messy squiggly line that goes up and down and in circles until it gets to the top and so i think that's what it is i think there's all kinds of prep and hard work and misses and wins that uh add up and they compound and you know there's lots of steps back but there's you know if, as long as you can get a couple of two steps forward then it, it ultimately will pay off what were the most meaningful lessons or principles that you learned early on in, in this company? So one was about feedback um, when we were kind of pitching the business and talking to investors and mentors. And, and one of our mentors had told us that, um, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm, I'm not even going to get this 100% right, but something along the lines of, don't let any individual opinion sway you more than you know 5% in any given direction, potentially. However, if you get a preponderance of those suggestions, then you should really, you should really evaluate those differently and think about it and, and, and potentially let it affect your course. Um, because listen, everybody has opinions, right? It's really, it's, and it's, it's hard. You, you, you have to focus and believe in something. And, and when you're building something new that doesn't exist in the world, you're not necessarily following a playbook. Um, and so you have to ignore a lot of advice, excuse me, you have to ignore a lot of advice, but at the same time, you have to embrace it if you're getting it from a lot of different angles. Yeah. So what I'm hearing is one of the filters, which is what I'm always curious about any kind of feedback is how do I filter it? Right. Not all feedback is created equal. Like how do I know what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to? And for you, it's the, that piece sounds like a quantity filter. If it's just one or two. Okay. Maybe if it's a huge, you know, majority or population that's saying that we might want to listen to it. Are there any other, oops, put my microphone. Are there any other, um, types of filters you use, whether it's for business or personal life around the kind of feedback that you take seriously versus the others you learn to have a thick skin or let roll off? I think, I think you got to believe what you believe in as part of it. You got to, you kind of have to stay the course sometimes. So this is kind of going against what we talked about earlier in terms of uh, the sunk cost fallacy. But sometimes if you believe in something, you gotta, you gotta, it takes, it's hard work to, to achieve something sometimes. And sometimes you gotta just ignore and, 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 and push forward. Yeah. But I think in both cases, you're not contradicting yourself because you're actually talking about listening to your instincts. Fair in enough. First, <laughs> in the first case, your instincts were telling you this is not right, you know? And in the second case, your instincts were telling you this is right. And it's proving itself out to be true. Right. Right. Um, so that's, that's actually well said. Anything else, mistakes made or um, leverage points learned that, that you, you look back on as important lessons? I think culture is really important. And, and, and I think we actually did this really well. I mean, we, of course, made our fair share of small mistakes here and there. But uh, culture is really important to invest in early on and defining the culture of the, the values of the company, but also the culture yeah. that you want to create. Um, and uh, because as you grow, what happens is it becomes harder, you know, we're you know, almost 80 people now. I think what's, we spend a lot of our time now is getting people aligned. 
um, that's a lot of our, our focus because you know if if everybody's kind of slightly off, if everybody's marching to a drummer that's you know five percent different or something like that, it has compounding effects as you go throughout the organization. And then by the time you get to someone maybe more junior on the team, they might be working in entire, thinking they're doing it right, but working on an entirely different direction and by no fault of their own, if, if anything, it would be our fault. And so um, building a, a strong culture of communication, of feedback, of trust is really important. And, you know, now we've got a team of, you know, around 80 people who are just, we've got an amazing, amazing team. And we're all really focused on achieving the same things. And um, I'm really proud of the team that we've created and the team that we have and, and, and the team that we're growing. What are some of the ways you've found to be effective at keeping people aligned, making sure that there aren't those misunderstandings that trickle down? One is being repetitive. It's, it's kind of like obnoxiously repetitive. Um, uh, you have to kind of keep repeating the key message over and over and over again in different mediums um, because um, that's just an important thing to do. The second thing is being transparent. So, you know, for instance, we've got bi-monthly or bi-weekly, so twice a month, all hands, where we share all of our financials, all the initiatives that teams are working on, um, that, that all kind of ladder up to our, our big goals. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Those are two probably really important things. Oh, and then three, I would say, is like kind of living it, embodying the culture yourself, yeah. um, because you can't, you can't be sitting in an ivory tower. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I love that. If I'm remembering this correctly, I think in kind of communication research, the idea is you have to say something seven times for somebody to really hear it once, which that's just an interesting, like, that's a lot of times, you know, just like you're saying, I've, it's almost obnoxious how many times I've said it. <laughs> yeah. But if we think about it, how many, how, we are inundated with messages, whether at work, whether on social media or whatever. So it kind of makes sense even now more than ever that we'd have to hear something consistently seven times before it even registers and really sinks in once, right? Yes. I mean, that seems to be the biggest thing. If you look at really successful founders and cultures, there's some kind of Kool-Aid, you know? Yeah. It's, it's like, there's some kind of Kool-Aid that like they're used to hearing it over and over again, over and over again. And it eventually becomes the default way they think about it. Like I was listening to a, a conversation with Elon Musk and one of the, the podcast hosts was talking about being a friend of somebody that used to be an engineer for him. And he said, listening to you now, I now know why he talks about problems the way that he talks about them, because Elon had drilled into them this idea of first principles, first principles. Like we solve things off of first principles, you know? And it was like, oh, that is so interesting. But like to him, he's probably said, I've thought it, said it a thousand times, right? Right. Uh, so I just find that interesting. It is interesting. And I think the same thing holds true as you, uh, as you think about your communication to your customers. So if you look at some of the greatest brands, they're extremely consistent and they're saying the same thing over and over again. They might be saying it in slightly different ways, um, but they are saying the same thing over and over and over and over again. And that's what builds a brand. And that's what in a consumer's mind, because to your point, you know, our customers, we, they're not reading every single one of our emails. They're not seeing every one of our social posts. They're not seeing every one of our, et cetera. And, but so, but every time they open one of our things, we want to make sure we're kind of, we're, we're, we're tooting the same horn. Yeah. Yeah. So in the e-commerce subscription based kind of world, um, man, I don't even know how to ask this question other than how do you do it? Like, it feels like a wild opportunity. Like there's obvious opportunity yet. It also feels like it must be incredibly challenging with the amount of 
things that people are seeing to pay attention to yours, to be willing to pay for the subscription, that initial hurdle to get them over. Um, what have you found to be helpful in converting those initial customers? So a few things. One is uh, when we started the business, there were a few things that we were really excited about and we felt were important. One was variety. We felt that our customer is not buying, you know, 12 or, or even six of any given category in a year. You know, maybe they'll buy one pair of shoes a year. Maybe they'll buy, uh, you know, one grooming brand a year, but they're not getting 12 pieces of grooming products a year. And so we felt variety was really important, which is why we play in every category. We do everything from apparel to outdoor gear, to kitchen, to home, to bar, et cetera. We touch every part of our customer's life. The other important component is we're extremely flexible. There's no commitment. You do not need to, we're almost like a quasi subscription. You do not need to, you could sign up and, and not get anything with us. And the way it works is we, you know, when you sign up, you tell us um, information about yourself. You tell us the categories you're interested in. I'm really into outdoor, I'm into kitchen, into bar, not into grooming, whatever your profile is. And then based on your responses, we, we provide a selection for you, something we think that you're going to really like. And then you can decide if you want it or not. If you don't want it, you just skip it. We don't charge you a penny. And then you wait till, you know, next month. In this case, you'd wait till, you know, April and you'd say, and we give you your next suggestion. And every month we're getting smarter about what you like and what you don't like based on um, what, you're, what, what you're buying, what you're not buying, what you're browsing, what you're, uh, we, we ask you survey, we ask you questions about things, you're, the things we're working on that we think you might be interested in to gauge your interest. So we're using all that information to kind of help us make better decisions and recommend you a product or a brand from a really cool maker that we think you're gonna love. Makes total sense. And again, you're selling me on it right now. I like that. <laughs> um, so with customization, with, with taking in data and sorting through it and seeing the pattern and what you would like and not like where my mind goes to probably because I was just listening to, you know, Elon Musk and stuff is thinking about machine learning and AI and, and that kind of thing. Is that something, or could you imagine that being something that would assist a, an algorithm like this, a thing that helps more efficiently or better guess what people's likes are or, or no? We're just scratching the surface there, and that's something that we've we're coming into 2022 and and really excited about. Um, you know, I don't think now there there is a difference, but you know, it's not like a Netflix style model where they kind of have unlimited inventory, lots of titles. Uh, we've got different constraints, but we do think that um, there's a big opportunity in data science. If you look at Stitch Fix, for instance, um, they've done a phenomenal job. They almost define themselves as a data science company. They do an amazing job of taking all these different data points from the consumers, looking at how, how those apply to the broader audience, and then making more informed decisions for their customers. And we're trying to do the same thing. Um, the, the interesting challenge we have is that we're, we're, we're playing in all these different categories. Um, you know, again, you know, everything from outdoor to kitchen to et cetera. And so there's an interesting kind of challenge there, but it's a really exciting challenge. And we think, you know, a big opportunity uh, from a customization, personalization standpoint. Absolutely. Do you ever run into trust issues? Like, is that ever a, a hesitancy for certain customers to like, what are you going to do with my data, my data? Who are you giving it to? Anything like that? Or is that not? No. And, and we, we were like, and the data is pretty innocuous. It's kind of things like, Hey, we're working on this coffee concept. Like what kind of roast do you like dark, medium or light? Um, but even aside from that, we, everything we do not run into, we have, I don't believe we run into trust issues for that and all the data is extremely secure and and it's it's 
really used just to guide. It's all internal. It's all used internally just to guide product making this buying decisions. Yeah, I do think it's interesting. I have a client. Uh, I coach the executive or the CEO of this client that works with with trucking companies. So they they're they're a factoring company, which I had no idea what it was. So I started working with them, you know. And so they're trying to get these trucking companies to up, you know, to use their software that's so much better than what they've been using to help track shipments to, for visibility for all that kind of stuff. And what they were surprised to find out was the majority of the people rejecting it were worried that the government was going to use this to track them. <laughs> and they were like, "Hold on, what?" And they're like, "It was like old school truckers, you know, that were like." Well, I don't know where this is going. I don't want someone tracking me. The government might be tracking me or whatever. And so I, I had to help them think through, like, that's a real pain point. Like, unless you address, they're going to keep thinking that. Like, you need to say explicitly, this information is not going to the government. You know, like, it's for these purposes only. So that's what made me think of it. It's like, you just never know who gets spooked out by what nowadays. And, and for some good reason, right? Like, when you find out that certain companies that have bad actors in them or they've been using it for, for certain things, uh, I totally understand. But I could see... Yours being a little different, your customers right. be a little different. Yeah, <laughs> that's hilarious, though, um, man. So, on a slightly different note, I'm just curious for you as a founder, going through this journey of learning to lead a company and growing as a leader, or growing as a person. Uh, are there any particular books or influences that have been particularly helpful for you? Books or influences. Um, I, I should probably read more, to be honest with you. I feel like that's one thing I've let, uh, let go by the wayside. The late, the latest book I read was shoe dog by Phil Knight about the, Love that. that was a, that was a great book about, uh, how he built Nike. Um, and I, I really liked that book because it wasn't a, a lot of the, a lot of business books I've tried to read. I feel like you read the first two chapters and you kind of get it. And then yeah. they talk about the same thing for the next 12, 20 chapters. Yeah. Whereas that one is a really, it was really a story about how he built this company and then um, all the different influences that created. It. And it's just a fascinating story. So I, I really enjoyed that. And um, what I, and what I also liked about that one, especially was he was on the brink of failure so many times and you never, yes. I mean, going back to what we talked about earlier, you would never have thought it. And um, he Even though his some, sales was through the roof. Yes. You know, that was the surprising part to me was like millions of dollars in sales, yet he was still about to go under because of the banks not being willing to give him, you know, money because of how risky it was or whatever. I, I agree. I thought that was such a fascinating story. Yeah. So that was, uh, I enjoyed that quite a bit. Love it. Yeah. So I bet one of the reasons why you stay away from some of the books is the reason why I do is when they're too, prescri too prescribed, it's like, how do I know, you know, the context of, of my business situation to be that prescriptive on this is the way to do it right yeah. um but i do read some especially if they're more topic based so like really great research on culture or on team dynamics or whatever but what i've found like you is i love stories man which is why i probably uh, now i'm realizing psychoanalyzing myself it's probably why i'm doing <laughs> the podcast this way uh is I, I i'm like i want to know phil knight's story like we all just see the huge success nike is like how the hell did that get started how did he figure out the manufacturing challenges like you know, all that kind of thing. And I'll tell you one that was interesting. Uh, have you ever read anything on Winston Churchill? No. I mean, beyond what I read in college. So there's one called The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson that hmm. I loved, especially falling asleep to it. I listen to books like that when I'm falling asleep. And it's great because it's story format. And so it's the story of like him when he entered into leadership and the, the World War cranking up and 
you get to hear the ins and outs of basically his life from like accounts from his secretary, accounts from his chief of staff, like a full picture of what it was like day after day. It goes chronologically for how they handled almost being, you know, overrun by Germany. And what was crazy, man, as I was listening to that book and two months later, the pandemic hit. Wow. And it had these like unconscious lessons around leading in times of crisis that were so helpful to me just as reflecting on the story. Like I, my mind went back and I was like, oh, he was huge on communication. Like one of his, the biggest things that he did was get rid of all BS communication, meaning no fluff, like stop having a whole page when you could give it to me in a paragraph. Like that's, I just need you to tell me what I need to know and it needs to get to me now. And I need to be getting out to the front lines communication as often as possible. And like he needed real time data before there was phones and things like that. Right. And he just did all these creative things that were like, cut out the bullshit. You just need, I need to, we all need to know the orders. I need to know the feedback from the front lines. Like let's go. And, and so things like that were, were huge for you and me and my team. Like we're gonna have to communicate more than ever in the pandemic, not less than ever. We need to be talking twice a day if we normally talk once a day, you know? We need to cut out unnecessary expenses or communications and only make vital things. So uh, I don't even know why I'm on that subject right now. It just, I, <laughs> I just, it lights me up around stories, you know? We can learn so yeah. much from them. Yeah. One, one thing I've been doing lately, which might be bothering some of my team actually, is I've been really into Twitter. Very, every morning, every night, for like 30 minutes, I'll be just reading Twitter. Uh, reading tweets of people I follow and people I don't even follow. They, they've changed their algorithm up a bit where they recommend you content now. And there's just, it's really interesting where you, you get access to this kind of fire hose of, of people who are dealing with different, but also similar problems. And, and they talk about how they're dealing with it. Yeah. Um, and so I'll, I'll, every day I'm just sending like threads to someone on my team being like, Hey, like, check this out. Like, it's pretty interesting. Like we should think about applying this concept to something we're working on. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious for you. Have you found anything intentional uh, that has helped you either show up your best on a daily basis as the leader and or leverage your time, leverage your time in the most valuable ways? I think on the time side, we've, as a company, we've, through the pandemic, especially, we, we need to do a better job. I think to your point, once the pandemic hit, all these meetings kind of got thrown on the calendar because you had to over communicate. You had to make sure everybody, you know, there was no longer people overhearing things in the office. And now everybody's calendars are just way slammed. They're, they're really overwhelmed. So we, we, we want to kind of do a calendar audit to, to Good idea. cut some of that back, to be honest with you, because there's almost no time to do work sometimes. Um, on the other, on the other question, one thing I think I've been trying to do a better job of, frankly, is uh, how do you, how do you, um, radiate a, a positive attitude because attitude is really infectious, I think. Um, and it's, it's, you know, we deal with so many challenges throughout the day. It's easy, you know, towards, and I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert as well. So towards the end of the day, I'm just completely drained. Like my, I'm just yeah. emotionally yeah. gone, you know, and it's really hard for me to do that sometimes, but it's really important, I think, because everybody takes cues off of each other, especially as a leader, you need to make sure that, you know, you're, 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 you're communicating, not just through language, but also through body language, through tone, through, through all that. And so that's something I've been trying to think about a lot lately. Where, where is your mind gone? Is there anything you're experimenting with right now to kind of fill you up? Right. Cause I'd imagine in order to be hopeful, positive, energetic, you're having to do something that's giving you that energy. 
I got a little five-year-old at home that gives me tons of energy. So he's like my, uh, he's my saving grace. And I, uh, I just, you know, always look forward to going home and, and getting some quality time with him. Heck yeah. Heck yeah. Uh, well, they can be dangerous too. We, we joked about before the podcast, I've got this nice stripe down my head from playing T-Rex with my son, my four-year-old yes. to just scratch the ever-living shit out of me. So. Yes, they, they can, they can be, they can be quite dangerous. And they, <laughs> they're, pretty, they're pretty funny. They're pretty funny though. So for the second part of our conversation, I'd love just to open it up to you. We can talk about whatever. What's what's something you're currently passionate about or, or, or you know, at least interested in that you think would help accelerate growing someone's business or their personal life? One thing I've been thinking a lot about is, uh, you know, given how hectic our days become, and this could, this could sound negative, but I don't mean it in a negative way, is this idea of, um, I, th I think something I can do pretty well, which is compartmentalizing. And again, I think compartmentalizing has a negative connotation, but there's just, you know, we talked about this roller coaster of, of emotions and of, you know, things that occur on a day-to-day -day basis, or frankly, an hour-to-hour -hour basis sometimes within a company. It's, it's really, it sometimes can be hard if you can't kind of um, uh, separate those things to make really good decisions on other topics that come up. Because it's really easy if, you know, some, some piece of bad news comes, for example, to let that ruin your day. Yeah. And so I think it's really important to be able to, you know, hear the bad news, deal with it or table it, and then kind of set that aside in your brain so that you can focus on the other important things that are happening. Because, you know, as you said, like that's that squiggly line that we talked about in the beginning. So there's, there's always kind of things happening and, and, and ultimately we want to focus on those successes and lean into them and all, but also you know, properly deal with any challenges that come up. Yeah. Let's dive into this. I'm super excited to talk about this. <laughs> so again, as a kind of as a human performance coach, I'm always looking at how we do things, how we could do things differently. One of the things I've realized is not all stress is created equal, right? So a lot of what we're talking about is carrying weight, things that are happening, things that we're dealing with. There's a big difference in acute stress and chronic stress. And acute stress is kind of what you're talking about. So acute stress has a definite beginning and a definite end. It is compartmentalized. It's like, I took this on, I thought about it, I applied myself to it, and then I put it down and I moved on to something else, right? And our body reacts really well to that. Our brain for short periods of time can experience the weight of it, you know, cha you know, challenge yourself to solve the problem, but then it needs to stop it. Almost like going to the gym. You need to put the weight down and then go do something else. But for a lot of us, we're in chronic stress where it's kind of always on the back of our brain. We're kind of always carrying it around. We never, we don't know how to put it down. So that's kind of what I'm hearing when you say compartmentalize. Is that part of it? That's part of it. And I think the added layer here is we are in this stressful world right now, uh, which the pandemic did not help. Uh, and, and so, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And and it's important. That part of the reason it's important to set it down sometimes, even if you haven't solved it. Yes. Is it, I mean, it's always this, what's the classic, the classic shower, the shower thaw, shower moments, right? When you, when you come up with a solution, when you're taking a shower, it's because you set it aside and you let your brain, it's, it's still sitting in your brain, it's right? It's percolating but, in the background. Yeah. And then you come up, you, you're like, oh, I got an idea. Like, let's, let's just do that. Yes. Yeah, man. That is so huge. I always think about the Mad Men scene where, do you ever watch Mad Men? Yeah. Yep. So when the new, you know, the new company that came in and acquired them is, auditing everybody and they're looking at the budget and the time spent by the creative department and they're on him hardcore about like what are these two-hour breaks and paying for them to go do these whatever and he gives this whole spiel about how creativity works and how it's actually in the two hours that they go and walk around or whatever he said you concentrate very hard 
on a problem and then you let it rest. And he's like, it's in that letting it rest that the idea almost comes to you. And so, so similar to what you're saying, because I found that in my own life, whether it's leading my business or creative work, that it's focus hard, focus hard, and then like trust it. Like it's unresolved, but I'm going to sleep on it, right? Yes. And that's so critically important. It's also important to let your brain and your body just rest. Um, taking, we could probably do a better job of this, but even taking vacations is important, right? Just, just getting away and, yes. and letting yourself reset and decompress. And then you can, you just come so much more reinvigorated when you're dealing with anything. I, I totally agree. And what I've found, and tell me if you, you, you see the same is if we don't do it well daily, like if we're on a day-to-day -day basis, if we're not doing a good job of when we're on, when we're off, when we're focusing really hard, when we're taking a small break, then we end up needing it in big ways, right? If like we neglect the small rhythms, like eating, like we start to see eating as like a disruption to schedule, you know, <laughs> instead of like right. a necessary 15 minutes to take some food in to like have a good conversation. Well, then we end up feeling like I need a month vacation. Oh man, I need this big break from my job and it doesn't work. You, you get back and you're still tired. Yes. But when we have a little more daily routine with family, with the beginning of our day, breaks in the day, picking stress up, putting it down, well then vacations are incredibly helpful and they are rejuvenating. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And even, I mean, to your day-to-day -day, day -day point, even like commuting is actually, it's a great time for me. It's my opportunity to decompress, especially on the way home. Yes. where I get, you know, 40, 30 to 40 minutes where I can listen to a podcast. I can, you know, play Wordle or Candy Crush or whatever I need to yep. play for the day. And just then I can go back and, I, and my brain's kind of, you know, taking a second and then I can be all in at the next moment. I have to, I have to do a artificial commute because I work from home now. <laughs> I have ever since the pandemic. And that was one of the hardest things that was there was not a natural separation between when I was on and when I was off. And so I take a 15 minute drive to a Starbucks just to give myself 15 minutes there, sit there for a few minutes, drink my coffee, do whatever, and drive back home. That's as important. silly as that is, I'm like, I could save money by just having coffee at home, but I actually just need to get out. I need to like drive over there, be around people for a little bit and then come home because I missed that commuting time, just like you're talking about. Yeah, I totally agree. Man, one of the things I was, uh, to continue this conversation, I'm curious what you think about this. So with compartmentalizing. So one of my friends is a doctor. He works with, uh, he works for CHOA in Atlanta with children. Right. And he came over one night. We barely ever get to see him cause he's so busy, but he came over, we call him uncle Nick. He came over and we're having a beer and we're talking. I'm like, man, how are, how's life going? Whatever. And he was super stressed out. And you know, one of the questions he said, he's like, maybe you can help me with this. And I was like, probably not, <laughs> you know, probably not. He's like, no, no, no. Like this, I think would apply to behavior and all that kind of stuff. I was like, maybe. And he said, my biggest problem is not having what just happened in that room affect me in that room. And I was like, well, tell me yeah. what's going on. He's like, well, I was just in one room where I maybe just had to tell these parents that this kid has terminal cancer. And then I've got to walk into another room and it's hard for me not to carry that feeling and that emotion and distraction into the other room where I may be having a totally different conversation that I need to be present and caring and optimistic for, right? And then he said, and then I get home and I'm so overwhelmed by everything that's happened today that I, he's like, I know this isn't good, but I just drink a beer and go to bed. And right. I'm like, all right. So what we started working on was a little routine between rooms. So basically he could compartmentalize exactly like you're talking about. When you leave that room, what are you going to do to leave that moment in that room? 
And it was a little mindfulness moment. Like as he's filling out the chart and the notes, he's also leaving that there and telling himself, I'll pick this back up when I come back in this room. And then he had a preparation moment walking to the next room, like 30 seconds of who he is, the attitude he wants to have, and that he's going to be right here in this moment with this family. And then we had at the end of his day, him just journaling, not what happened, but how he felt. Mm. Because that was the biggest part. He's like, these emotions just sit in me. I mean, this sounds crazy. And I know I'm getting deep, but he said, Drew, when he's talking, he said, Drew, right now my forearms are killing me. Do you know why? I was like, no idea. He's like, because I was compressing a child's heart for 30 minutes a day, and it's still, and the child still died on the table with me. Jeez. And he's like, he goes, how the hell do you get rid of that? And I said, dude, I don't know, but I do know that it's better to express it instead of repress it. Right. And so instead of drinking and going to sleep, what if you just spent time journaling how you felt? And those two things have been a game changer for him. It hasn't solved everything, but like, he's like, man, I'll cry as I'm writing over those pages. But then I feel so much better the next day. Like I kind of got it out right. and I'm able to show back up as Dr. Nick, who's happy and ready to be with the patients today. Does that make sense? That makes, I mean, you definitely got really deep right now. And so, Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but no, that, <laughs> but no, that makes, that makes absolute sense. You have to get it out of you somehow. And so that you can, I, I really like that idea of the ritual in between, in between the, you know, proverbial rooms as it were, because that's pretty powerful. And it, it, it provides that reset moment for you. And, and, and especially for, for your, for your buddy, those are extremely intense moments. Um, yeah. And we've started using it in the corporate world. So like the clients we work with, if they're in back-to-back -back meetings or they're going from this major focus to a really different focus, right? Can you give yourselves five minutes to make that switch? Right. Wrap up. Cause sometimes you need to wrap something up like, Oh, I needed to capture the notes on that and send the to do's great. But as you're doing that, you're kind of winding down from that thought train. And then what are you going to do to kind of take a breath and gear up for the creative conversation you're about to have or the, totally different mode you're about to be in and just providing these little kind of segmented breaks that retrain and refocus. You know, does that make sense? That makes complete sense. And there's also little things too. One thing I've noticed I do is I, uh, I pay when I'm thinking, I, I really love to pace. Mm. I don't know why something about pacing. It's very grandfatherly, but it, uh, so I'll often be in meeting rooms and I always apologize to people because I, I don't want to be like a weird dude. That's just creeping around the room, but <laughs> I define pacing as a, as a way to actually like unlock your brain sometimes. Yes. Well, I, I'll need to fact check this. I wish I had like an actual fact checker for my podcast. So if I'm wrong, you'll just have to put up with it audience. But I have a friend who's in neuroscience and I was asking him the same thing. Why do I, why do I feel like I get so much more clear when I'm moving? And he said, you know, part of it's blood flow and getting out of your same environment and all that kind of stuff. But he said, the other part is there's a lot of interesting research that shows you have an insane amount of neuroreceptors in your joints. Really? Yes. And that when your joints are moving, it releases more of those like neurochemicals that makes more connections. Huh. And so he said, there's actually starting to be pretty hard science why you have better ideas when you're moving because the, the neuro, I think I'm using the words, right? I think it's like neuroreceptors or something that are actually being uh, released in your joints when you're moving. So I, again, I could be wrong or that could be outdated. Listen, I'm going to try it. I'm going to just do jumping jacks in my next meeting. If it, does, if it works right. or if it doesn't work, I'm going to be like, dude, Drew told me that that's this right. Doesn't work. My ideas would be better, but uh, I don't know. That's right. No, but I'll tell you for me, for me, I'm the ADD. And so if I, I, in certain meetings that they're really long and I'm not leading it, like it's different. I bet for you too, if you're having to talk a lot and you're having to lead it, you're probably more engaged. But if I'm just more passively listening and contributing, 
it's really hard for me to focus and not get tired or distracted. And so moving helps me stay in the moment. So even from, we have a weekly L10 meeting with our team. I told them like, I'll give you all the permission to do this too, but since we're all remote, I'm walking during this. Like so, you're on the on video walking back and forth in that room you're in right now or? No, I'm out on a walk. Oh, so, okay, yeah. Yeah, so I'll, I'll turn my video off on Zoom, but I'll leave my audio on. And unless it's the kind of meeting I can tell that I'm gonna need to be at my computer either showing something or whatever, yeah. I'm like, if y'all be okay with it, I just need to be on a walk. You're gonna get so much more of my attention. Be, it's, I, don't, I don't even need to explain why, it just is. And I've noticed that time, I'm much more locked in. I'm less likely to be missing what's going on or lethargic during it. And so I'm just experimenting with even things like that. What are your thoughts on meeting times, like the length of meetings? Well, shorter the better, for sure. <laughs> Shorter, the better. I think if we were even better at setting up the framework of meetings, we would save a shit ton of time. So framework as in like an agenda or like a leader, things like that. Purpose. What is this for? Like, what is this for? Uh, so what, we follow EOS, like uh, yep. if you've ever read Traction, but yep. so we've based our meetings off of that. That's why we call them L10 meetings. The idea is to get them to a level 10. So we rank every meeting. Every meeting we have at the end, we let everybody tell them, what was your rank on this meeting? Was it a five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And we're looking for the trends. Like, why was that a 10? Why was that an eight? And usually when the score is lower, too much rabbit trace, rabbit holes, too much uh, lack of focus. And like, we didn't really solve any problems. We just updated. We just talked, right? And so the clearer we get, um, we always start on time and end on time. Like, that's the commitment we make for meetings. If you're setting a meeting, you have to be committed to starting on time and ending on time. And then second is follow some sort of agenda. Why are we here? And then let's get to it, you know? Uh, so yeah. that would be my, that's my theory right now. We went through a few operating systems in over the years, like management operating systems over the years. Um, I don't know if we ever fully committed to one. What we've now shifted to is doing OKRs, which are you familiar yep. with OKR? Yep. Doing that lately, which which we found actually pretty effective in terms, this is more about, aligning the company and the department in terms of what we're, you know, making sure everybody has their own kind of internal mission and, and they know what, how their work contributes to the what bigger the, mission. On, yep. the bigger mission of the brand and the company. Um, I think there's an interesting opportunity. We did, I think we, did we use EOS or something different? I forget what we used, but um, it, it didn't last very long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, with any of them, you gotta see if it's a good fit. So like, does this fit our kind of company, culture style, whatever. And the second you got to commit to what it's like parenting. I always tell people like whatever you want to do, just pick it and then do it because there's a thousand books all contradicting each other. So just find one you like, if it's a style of how you're going to do your sleep schedule or whatever, pick it and then just do that, you know, like make it work for you. And so EOS was just the one that worked for us that we, we, we stick to and really like, but That's we good. even, we even play with it. So like we have EOS as an overarching model. But then depending on the season we're in as a company, we'll actually move more towards like sprint methodology yep. uh, and like getting things out. And so we're flexible in how we kind of move in and out of systems. Um, we're not really religious in a sense about it, you know, dogmatic about it. Interesting. So, the other thing I would say too on the meetings is like, I just noticed if we're solving problems, it's much more enjoyable than if we're just talking about problems. And so I've used that as kind of a metric of how effective was a meeting was did we actually solve anything? Because if it's just updating, which updating is important on certain parts of meetings to make sure we're all on the same page, but people are going to feel really alive if they walked out with a solution they didn't have before they got in there. 
it is the thesis like, hey, if it's just updating, that could have been done by an email or a Slack or something like that. Yeah, or a company or or, or part of an update, like that this meeting is for updating or this part of the meeting is just to share relevant information so we know what's going on. But the bulk of the meeting needs to be about solving issues, especially if it's a departmental meeting or a specific team that's working on something. They're going to feel like that was a great use of their time because they moved something forward. Yeah, you know? and another thing that you, I think you'll find is interesting and we've been trying to move more towards as well is it's hard to make a perfect decision. I mean, it's, it's almost impossible half the time. Life is so complicated. Problems and challenges are so complicated. And it's often better to make a quick decision that's 80% right versus uh, belaboring the problem and trying to get to perfection. That has been a fascinating conversation. My recap for this is how do we lean into compartmentalization in a good way, right? Yes. Where, where boundaries, like where do we need boundaries in a day, before a day, in the middle of the day that helps us switch focused, pick things up, put things down? Man, especially if you're working from home right now and listening to this, at least that's been my challenge, is there are no natural boundaries anymore like we were talking about. Yep. And, and if you're especially in the early stage of a business, there's always gonna be something you could think about. And it takes incredible willpower and courage to not think about it and say, I'm gonna save that for tomorrow, yes. <laughs> right? Yep. Um, so I love that, man. Thank you for bringing it up. We haven't talked about that yet on the podcast, and I think that's an incredible insight. So I want to make the most of your time. I know that we're we're coming up here on on our our allotted time. So let me dive into the lightning round questions, and I'll let you get about your day. Sure. All right, my friend. So question number one: If you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, think about it like a billboard that they walk by every day in the office. What would that message be? Stay scrappy. So that's, this is one of our company values. And it's actually one that I think we've done the best job kind of, in, it's, or I think it is a bit of a billboard in the company's mind, but that is our, like one of our most passionate uh, values for the company uh, is to stay scrappy. And, uh, and, and I think actually, if you were to ask anyone who works here, they'd probably say that as well. Heck yeah. Awesome. All right. Question number two, what is this two-parter? So it's kind of a, a, a cheat, but what is the single best advice and also the worst advice you've received about growing your business? All right, the best advice I've heard is focus. Um, you know, I've, I've often said, we're not going to fail because of lack of opportunity. We're gonna fail because of lack of focus. And it's just one of the hardest things to do is you have to say no more than yes, um, because there's only so much that we can accomplish in any given day, month or year. Um, and if you try to do a lot, or a lot of things like a, you'll end up doing a little of a bit of a lot versus if you pick the two to three or whatever the number might be, things you want to accomplish and really invest in those, then you'll be much prouder at the end of that kind of time period. Heck yeah. How about anything that you hear that either doesn't apply to you or just in general, you, you don't agree with? The worst advice I've ever heard is probably, I don't know if I can have one off the top of my head to be honest with you right now. There's too much of it. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, that's fine. I've had that plenty of times, uh, which says something to me about certain founders' brains, which I think is probably a gift, is that a lot of that stuff just gets flushed. They don't even remember it. <laughs> yeah, I probably heard some bad stuff and just got flushed away. <laughs> All right, number three, uh, what currently either stresses you out or causes you the most worry as the leader of your organization? I think one thing we're thinking a lot about is how do we scale culture, especially in this hybrid world? Um, we talked about culture in the very beginning of this conversation. I think it's one of our strengths, but you know, we've actually, as of now, we've hired, there's more people who work at the company who were hired post pandemic than pre. I haven't wow. met the people in person yet. And you know, it's, it's, there's only so much you can do over the internet via a screen. And so we're thinking a lot about how do we scale 
our kind of product driven, like love of product and culture amongst the team. When even once we start returning back to the office, you know, we, we, we've now hired people who are just fully, you know, in different states. So they're, they're, they'll never be kind of in the office on a daily basis or even, you know, weekly basis. And so that's something we're, you know, we're, we're thinking a lot about. And of course, there's lots of tactical things that are challenging right now. The, you know, supply chain is crazy right now with all the challenges we're facing there, um, you know, inflation, et cetera. So there's all that kind of tactical stuff, which is very important and, and, and you know, we're dealing with. But I think one thing we're thinking a lot about is culture. Totally makes sense. All right. Number four, what is the big audacious goal or dream that you have for this company? Our goal is to, I hope it doesn't sound cheesy, but our, our goal really is to be the destination for people to discover great products from really interesting small brands. Mm. Um, and there's just, if you, you know, think about the rise of Amazon, Amazon's an amazing company, and, but it's like the everything store. It's got, it's got everything, but a lot of the products really lack that kind of heart and soul and story that we believe people are really looking for nowadays. And um, I think we have an opportunity, a really interesting opportunity to introduce our customers to the best small brands out there. And then on the flip side, like the opposite, the reverse of that is we're this platform for great small brands to reach great customers. Um, that really excites us. You know, we get, we still get messages. People will share them on Slack from our, from our vendors, from our brands who will like send us pictures of the orders we sent them. And they're just like, thanks. Like, this is awesome. Like, thank you so much. Like we're super excited working with you. Um, and that's like our big goal is to, is to be that platform for both customers and for us. So for the brands that we work with. Heck yeah. All right. Last question. And then you are off the hook. Last question is kind of a creative question. So we're going to play back to the future. If you could get into a DeLorean and you get to go back to your past, not there to change series of events or anything, but you do get to deliver a message to yourself. When would you go back in your past and what advice or what message would you pass along to that younger version of you? I would go to myself. I would, I would take the DeLorean flux capacitor and all yep. would go miles an hour, go to, uh, go to myself right before I entered college. And I would say, um, take as many, different courses as possible and different, you know, take, take as many, like in different, um, uh, subjects, like just, you know, economics, history, mm. um, uh, every, everything. And just take that opportunity to learn a bunch of stuff. Um, I hope that doesn't sound cheesy, but I just, one of the things that I've, so uh, I mentioned that photography thing earlier, how I was taking photos when we first started the company. I actually took, I took, I took black and white photography my junior year, junior and senior year of college. And I love, it was my, one of my favorite times. I'd be in the dark room. I would be listening to my disc man at the time. Dating yes. myself. And uh, that was my favorite time. But anyway, those, like all these, it's interesting how when you, when you later in your life or your career or what have you, all these different experiences from your past kind of amalgamate and form and, and they, uh, they really shape how you approach problems and challenges. And one of the reasons I actually went back to business school was because I, I felt like I was, I was missing some of the like, business-minded thinking and so um yeah i think i would do that heck yeah i'm gonna steal that answer i would have i didn't fall in love with learning until after school and i look back and see a waste that like i could have just like you i could have explored so many really cool mind opening and improving you know things out there but i just did it so i'm gonna take that rishi this has been awesome man thank you for being on the podcast thank you for putting up with the te technical difficulty and sharing your uh, story your wisdom i have learned a bunch from you today so i really appreciate you being here and then 
lastly, I know that was actually a wrap up, a false wrap up. Where do we send people if they want to check out your product and get onto your, uh, your, your, your database? Um, go to bespokepost.com. Uh, or Google it, or, or Google Box of Awesome, anything you want to do, and uh, we'd love for you to check it out. Awesome. Go get it, folks. Thank you. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.